1 to 16. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will seek God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Salt and light. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, you let your light shine before men, may they, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Thank you. He's going through the Gospel of Matthew. And we've arrived at uh, what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, it's such an important piece of Jesus' teaching that we're going to cover that over three weeks. But this week we're going to start with the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in particular the passage that uh, we all know as the Beatitudes. But uh, first let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray today you would reveal to us the true meaning of the passage we are considering this week. We pray that through this talk, our home groups, our conversations and personal reflection, that you would inspire us to follow Jesus more closely as our Saviour and King. In his precious name, Amen. Now, uh, I wonder whether or not the Sermon on the Mount, is strictly a sermon. When thinking of this passage, my mind went back to the TV movie drama, Jesus of Nazareth, starring Robert Powell back in uh, 1977. And uh, I remember the vicar at the time saying, was it historically authentic that you had a blue-eyed, blonde Jesus? And uh, I must admit, when I started preparing this talk, 
The thing that uh, I immediately noticed is that it says at the beginning of that passage that Jesus sat down and Robert Powell stood up for his sermon. And, and it made me think about some of the context of what was going on there. And uh, while we're on the subject of sermons, um, I came across an old piece of research dating back to the 90s, quoted in a book by Dr. John Drain, which states that no fewer than 42% of British churchgoers admitted to falling asleep during a service. More than a third said that they looked at their watch every, in church every Sunday, while a fully 10% having put their watch to their ear to just to check that it hadn't stopped. Now, in this passage, I don't think, Matthew doesn't record anybody that had gone to sleep in this sermon. And I don't think anybody, it definitely doesn't say that they looked at their watches. In fact, at the end of chapter 7, it says, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. I think Jesus demands our attention. And thinking about this sermon, I, I really wanted to understand the scope of what this teaching was about. And for the first time, I realized that the sermon was more about teaching on true righteousness than on some sort of kingdom manifesto. So at this point, we know that Jesus had been teaching in the sort of local communities. And we know what he was teaching because in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says that he's talking about the good news of the kingdom. And a kingdom needs a king. But this now becomes a really public act of teaching to the wider community. And as a result, it no doubt attracted a lot of attention from the religious authorities. They must have been asking the sort of question that John the Baptist asked, which was, are you the one who is to come? So to put this in context, first of all, if we think about the historical context, the Jews have had, and seem to always have, a turbulent history. And at this point in the story, they've returned to the promised land. And this promise of a land goes back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, where the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. Now, I don't want to start some geopolitical debate this morning, but I can, you can understand what was in the Jewish mind when they returned back to their land after something like uh, the number of years that they'd been out in, in Egypt, and now they'd been into exile, and they'd returned to the land. So about 600 years prior to Jesus... They'd, uh, they'd been taken into exile in Babylon, and then they returned to the land. But their enthusiasm, I would say, is a little bit lackluster in the way they try to reestablish the temple. And we're reminded, I know that we've just had Christmas, and you often hear about uh, that prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, where it says, 
wonderful counsellor, mighty God, etc. But the following verse says, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. So their return to the land, they must have been thinking, where's our king? But I mean, history was not all that good to them. In fact, we had uh, the Persians took them over and then the Greeks in various forms. Although for a couple of years, they did rule the land in 165 BC. But the Syrians regained control. And then in 36 BC, the Romans took over. And that's where they were at the time of Jesus. Interestingly, that all that was very carefully prophesied by Daniel, if you care to read that book as well. So they were holding on to the promise of a king. And as you go through the Gospel of Matthew, you see many quotes of prophecies from the Old Testament. And I think you'll see that Matthew was a Jew. So he would have been involved in being able to understand what was going on here. And uh, <clears throat> so the second context is, uh, is the ser sermon relevant for that moment in time for the Jews? And then we're under this strict Roman rule and they would be particularly praying that their Messiah would come and uh, overthrow the Romans and that they could have their kingdom back. It's interesting that the Romans had a policy of when they took over a country, they didn't remove the religious structure. They let it continue. I don't know whether that was a way in which they made sure that uh, they didn't upset the people too much. Um, but uh, they allowed them to rebuild a temple uh, under King Herod the Great. Um, that was the second time they rebuilt the temple. And uh, so they were looking for signs whether or not Messiah was coming. And maybe this Jesus was the one they were looking for. So um, at this point, we've got to remember that within what he was teaching, he hadn't yet gone to the cross. So I find it very difficult that when you come to these passages, it's very difficult to remove that understanding that you've got the bigger picture. Uh, but at that time, these people wouldn't have known about the sacrifice that Jesus was going to make. Now, uh, unlike Luke, uh, Matthew was clearly a Jew and would be well-versed in all these prophecies. And his gospel has got many Jewish perspectives in it, if you start looking at delving into it. Um, and he's driving home the point that uh, Jesus is this long-awaited saviour. The Old Testament... Is not really God's plan A that's gone wrong. It was, it, Jesus was the fulfillment of that plan. So there wasn't a change of direction, but a fulfillment of that original direction. So as I've sort of spent a, rather a lot of time on the background of this, um, I will now go into the Beatitudes. Um, but I'll only cover verses 3 to 12. And I encourage the home groups to look at the questions of salt and light. And uh, incidentally, if you uh, 
Don't know the, the word beatitude comes from the Latin, which means blessed, which is beatus. Now, I have to confess here, I mean, I must have read, read, read this passage many, many times over the last 50 years or so. But it's only when I had to knuckle down and start studying it to do a talk like this that it started to dawn on me what it was about. I mean, was it really meant for instruction or reassurance? Now, some people have stated that this is an inaugural address or maybe a kingdom constitution or even an update on the law. In fact, Jesus did expand on two of the uh, Ten Commandments later on in this Sermon on the Mount. But given the fact that Matthew was totally immersed in the Jewish aspect of this, um, he really wanted to make sure that uh, we got the story of Jesus talking about true righteousness, particularly against the, 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 the teachings of the Pharisees. And these are, were an incredible bunch of people. They tied themselves in knots over the law and their interpretation of the Old Testament laws. And they taught that righteousness was from the outside. To give you an example, that's a, a page from the Mishnah, uh, which is a, uh, it's a written down of the oral traditions of the Jews. And to give you an example of the zeal of the Pharisees, if you take the fourth commandment, which is remember the Sabbath, this law was minutely dissected by the Pharisees and the, and the rabbis at the time into something like 2,000 rules on what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. To give you two examples here, if a deer enters a house on the Sabbath and a man shuts it in, he is guilty. But if two people shut it in, they are not guilty. Try and figure that one out. Or even meat and onions and eggs may be roasted on Friday unless there is time for them to be finished before sundown. There you go. It just gives you an example of, of how much they unpack these laws. So Jesus was almost giving a reset to their, to their people of their understanding of what righteousness was. And it possibly helps the interpretation of this passage. In fact, in verse 20, just, just after this passage, we see Jesus explicitly saying that righteousness through the law is unachievable. Now, I think possibly looking at the Beatitudes in the wrong light, I've been doing that for some time, and I think they are, they are not, A, rewards for doing good, but the blessings we have for B, attitude. Not only that, I admit, some of the categories were a real puzzle to me. And considering the true meaning in the context of correcting the erroneous Pharisaic view on righteousness starts to unpack it. Now, have we uh, got a picture of this fine chap? Just thought I'd mention this in passing. Does anybody recognise... Him, anybody? Makarios, yeah. The reason I put that up is that the Greek word for blessing 
is Makarios. So maybe there's one thing that you will definitely remember today. So the promises we've got are blessings. And my Bible says the footnote there is a blessing is described as ultimate well-being and distinctive spiritual joy of those who share in the salvation of the kingdom. I'll say that again. Ultimate well-being and distinctive spiritual joy of those who share in the salvation of the kingdom. And notice, it's not dependent on circumstances. So let's unpack these verses now. So first of all, who are the poor in spirit? Those who are poor in spirit are the humble. They don't have an inflated view of themselves, and they wouldn't reserve the best seats in the synagogue, for example. Blessings flow out of humility and not working at being spiritually poor. So heaven is owned by the humble. And I think a good example of somebody that was humble was Matthew himself. If you go through the whole gospel, he doesn't quote anything of what he said himself, but we get a profound amount of what Jesus was saying. So blessed are those that mourn. And I think it's obvious that uh, Jesus wants to comfort those that mourn. But another interpretation of that are those that mourn over sin. Now that could be personal sin or corporate sin. And Jesus would go on to comfort us with his ultimate sacrifice for sin. I don't know. We'll have to wait patiently for the reckoning of corporate sin. Um, We might have to wait till the times of revelation. But uh, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And and, uh, we want to get those kingdom values of uh, being able to have a deep remorse for our sin. And that as such, we will receive comfort. Blessed are the meek. And uh, the word here used, I believe, is the sort of word that was used to explain the breaking in of a horse. And it's meant to represent power under control. And ultimately, what that means is that we are to be, uh, we understand our place amongst God and recognize him as the almighty and our station within his kingdom. We will inherit the earth. Um, And interestingly, the the word earth there could similarly be translated as land. And maybe the Jews of today might uh, recognize that uh, inheriting the land might be better to be done through meekness. Jesus' words there are taken directly from Psalm 37. Now moving on to the next set of Beatitudes. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now the the Pharisees believe righteousness came from works, but we don't gain righteousness by what we do. Jesus provides the righteousness. We just need to accept it through belief in him. 
thirst after Jesus, our righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Jesus describes the Pharisees as placing burdens on backs of people without helping them. He lacked, they lack mercy, and by implication, they won't be seen, uh, they won't be shown mercy. Harsh but true, and uh, Jesus' words in Luke chapter 11 to the Jewish lawyers. And you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourself will not lift one finger to help them. Blessed are the pure in heart, possibly needs no explanation. But when we see the word heart in the Bible, it means the mind, the will, and our emotions. Purity in thought, word, and deed is called for. What a blessing it is to be pure enough to see God. And I find that when I look around the congregation, I see amongst that and fellowships, little glimpses of the Almighty. Uh, isn't that wonderful? And if I can work on my purity, I might be able to see a little bit more of that as well. Seeing God amongst us. Blessed are the peacemakers. Again, perhaps needs no explanation, but doesn't the world need peacemakers? We think of Ukraine, Gaza, Miramar, Somalia, Syria, Sudan, to name but a few. What we need is more peacemakers, like Peter Marsden, blessed as a child of God. And then the last few blessings come to the persecuted. Two categories, those that are righteous and those that are followers of Jesus. Persecution is something from our outside ourselves, but it's how we deal with it is part of the quality that Jesus is calling us to bless. The third and final context of what we've been talking about is what relevance this is to us today. We have the luxury of knowing that Jesus came to provide us with righteousness. However, the beatitude should excite us to know what the characteristics and blessings are of being in his kingdom, both now and in the future. Our response to Jesus' sacrifice should be to draw us into a personal, spiritual growth out of love. There is more to belief in Jesus than getting a get-out-of-shale card. The nine Beatitudes are qualities to be written in our hearts, not ten commandments written on stone. These are qualities that should be part of our character and not to fall into the trap of the Pharisees and attempt to work at righteousness as a reward, but seek God, follow Jesus, and we will exhibit family characteristics such as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These aren't forbidden by law. And the blessings will follow. 
although some of the blessings we have already received, but perhaps not realized. Blessed are those who believe in Jesus as the ultimate king, their personal saviour and true fulfilment of the law. Now, I don't know if you've noticed six of the blessings are for the future and two are for the present. So it gives us hope for the future when thy kingdom come. But also, we are blessed now. We have a down payment with the Holy Spirit. The God of our, of our Father has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What Christ did for us should give us an attitude of gratitude so we experience the beatitude. Blessings on you all. Let us pray. Purify our hearts, Lord, that we may receive the blessings of seeing you. Help us to humbly follow you in love, eager to exhibit our godly family characteristics. We thank you that you have removed the burden of the law and planted your spirit within us to guide us to all truth. We thank you for your abundant blessing in Christ. Amen.